0: baby dress the tree i got the table looking christmasy hey everyone and welcome to
1: the pod and the pendulum up, and this month we are taking a break from covering franchises and we're settling down with some of our favorite one-off holiday horror movies so for this week's selection we have decked ourselves out in our finest outfits we have set the table with only the most posh of our silverware and there will absolutely be charades. We are talking about the 2021 pitch black horror comedy. May have to put that last word in quotes. Silent Night, written and directed by Miss Camille Griffin. And I am not alone for this one. How can you host a dinner party for one? Would not be much fun at all. I am joined once again by the host of the Bodies of Horror podcast, available on the Anatomy of a Scream podcast network, Miss Nicole Goble. Nicole, how are we doing?
0: Doing great. So, so pumped to talk about this movie. Excellent. Incredible.
1: And joining us again, he uh, is the co-host of the Spectre Cinema Club podcast, Mr. Devon Taylor. Devon, how are we doing? I'm
2: doing good. I, I love how last week I said I'm the Scrooge of the group, but yet here I am for my second uh, holiday episode. You, I think, are here for almost all of them. I'm, I'm, I'm still up in the air for Krampus. We'll, we'll see because I, okay. I have a, I have a, might have a thing. But yeah, I, I might be That's here okay. for the whole run, which is kind of funny. Yeah, because like even though mm-hmm. I don't love Christmas, I do find a lot of christmas horror that i like and maybe that's why because like it's like the darker spins on the holiday that like feels a little bit more accurate to me than just like the bubbles and gumdrops of you know regular
1: christmas movies christmas movies in general can be a lot of fun they can be a bit saccharine depends on what you find and it, it is definitely a cottage industry like there's hallmark you know, there's like that is a whole cottage industry at this point. Um, but then there's just like kind of like fun side Christmas movies, like technically like Rambo First Blood is a Christmas movie. Like it takes place at Christmas season. Like there is a season's greetings sign up there in the police uh, district. You know, Die Hard, obviously, Christmas movie. Uh, Home Alone is a Christmas movie. Home Alone 2 It's a great Christmas horror movie, uh, I would argue. Shout out uh, Macaulay
2: Culkin just got his uh, Hollywood uh, star on the Walk of Fame.
1: And what a lovely speech, like absolutely, like no shade, like Mm -hmm. beautiful speech that he gave to his fiance, like shouting her out, like well-deserved. Shocked he didn't have a star already. And, you know, like I think we're ready for more Macaulay Culkin. Like definitely... Uh, you know, ready for more of him. Like his younger brothers have gone on to also have great careers like Rory McCulkin. He's done some pretty fantastic work uh, in the past few years uh, with succession and Lords of chaos. So we're ready for it. I'm ready for a home alone movie where like he's in his forties and maybe there's some PTSD and he has the house set up with traps on Christmas and the family has to kind of avoid them and, talk him down from the ledge a little bit. Like, I want that. Give me that comedy.
0: Yeah. And he has been getting more and more back mm-hmm. into acting. Yeah. Cause I know that he, you know, had a lot of personal struggles there for a while. I actually saw him in concert mm-hmm. uh, when he was touring with the pizza underground, That's awesome. which was a velvet underground, uh, cover band. Mm-hmm. And he played a pizza box. <laughs> uh, um, And when you say
1: he played a pizza box, like as an instrument or he played the role of a pizza box?
0: No, he played it as an instrument. It's amazing. Uh, And they retooled uh, some of the lyrics to be about pizza. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, it was a lot of fun, Um, but he was on a recent season of American horror story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's dipping. He's, dare I say, dipping his toes back into a little bit of horror. So it would be great to see him, uh, pop up. Yeah.
1: All this is to say, I know this year we're doing Muppet Christmas Carol as our non horror Christmas day drop. And I'm going to lobby hard next year to maybe make home alone. The Christmas day movie that we do. Cause so I, no, um, no irony. What I love Home Alone. I think that movie is brilliant. It's so much fun, and I didn't watch it until I think my forties. Like I, because it came out right when I was a teenager, so I kind of missed that like sweet spot. Like I saw Uncle Buck in theaters and thought like, oh, what a cute kid. But like Home Alone was like I was a little bit too old for it, you know, growing up, and didn't really catch it until uh, like I had a kid. Uh, And, like, what a delight that movie is. So I think next Christmas season, that might be the drop that we do. And, I don't know, maybe we'll do a commentary in the patron this year. Who knows? Like, just just spitballing. But let's talk about this movie this week. Let's talk about 2021's Silent Night, which is ironic we're doing it this week because there is another Silent Night (laughs) that is out. John Woo making his return to American cinemas with... A Christmas movie, uh, a Christmas action movie, Silent Night. So here we go. But Devon, you were the one that brought this one to the table. Like when we were discussing which movies we should cover for our one-offs, this was your, one of your picks. And I'm curious, what was it about this movie that really called out to you?
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, aside from us, you know, hopefully capitalizing on some SEO of John Woo's movie, uh, way too many <laughs> way too many films named Silent Night, way too many of them. Uh, though this one, uh, you know, I think it plays into it really well. Um but uh, I love the idea of like an end of the world party, uh, the way that this is uh, kind of set up for it. Um, And I remember whenever it was announced and I was like, oh, I feel like this is going to really be a Christmas party for like a Christmas movie for me because it's going to be super dark. And uh, it ended up being in my top 10 of that year of uh, 2021. Um, You know, it was uh, it's it's a fascinating watch to like kind of watch these people like still kind of go through some of the social niceties of Christmas, even given the circumstances. But then as that kind of washes away throughout the film um it's a uh it's a very darkly humorous film with a uh fantastic ensemble and like i think it really juggles the tones really well of uh kind of keeping you in one place and then they'll drop kind of a bomb on you and then you kind of it lifts back up for a minute and then we go back to the dark stuff you know and then and, and of course you know just the timing of when this came out uh you know you know post uh covid pandemic and stuff and uh, well, not even pose like this was still kind of came out whenever we were still uh, kind of dealing with a lot of stuff going on with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was uh, an interesting
1: parallel to the things that were going on. uh Yeah. So I, I really love this film. 2021 feels like such a blur. Like it feels like very hard to conflate a lot of like what was going on in that year. It feels like a lost year in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, so, Nicole, how about yourself?
0: Yeah, I heard about this and was really excited when it dropped. Um, I knew that it was produced by Matthew Vaughn, and I like a lot of his stuff. Um, so I I was looking forward to this. Um, this ended up being an outdoor movie night with one of my friends. Uh, he is really great about... Um, my you know, kind of deal with him that he will come over, I will pick the movie, we'll play a game where I make it seem like he has a choice but he doesn't um, and I'll be like, oh, well, what about this movie? It just dropped and it would be really cool to watch it and he's like, fine you have the remote, so I guess
1: and Meanwhile, um, you're hitting the- play on it already
0: Yeah, I'm like, Oh, what's that? Oops. Um, So yeah, it's, I love Christmas war, because I love the juxtaposition. I think it's an acknowledgement of how hard this time of year can be um, for a lot of folks on an emotional and mental level. Um, You know, it's supposed to be a really celebratory time, and I think in a lot of ways it is, but it's also really draining. And I think that this film tackles so much um, in a pretty compact time. Um, I think I had mentioned that um, in the past with a couple of shorter films, but I I feel like there's, you know, I feel like we've covered some really good films that really know how to take some interesting narrative pieces and make the most of them without it feeling really bloated. Mm -hmm. And the performances, in this film. I watched it again early this morning. Um, And wow. It's just, I get more and more impressed with this film. The more I watch it.
1: Excellent. So I had heard about this movie via Lindsay when she was, we were doing the show together. Like she had mentioned it as part of like one of our like three up series where we talk about like new movies. We had caught, and she had the opportunity to see it as part of its debut at the uh, Toronto International Film Fest. And she loved it. And I was genuinely excited to check it out, like, based on her because I typically love, like, very awkward British humor because it's just an area they excel at. Like, I love shows like The Mighty Boosh, uh, Faulty Towers... Uh, you know, I was weaned on like I growing up and listen to Doctor Demento just to catch little bits of Monty Python. Um, I love Peep Show, like things like that. So um, I love that style of humor, and I'm not sure if they quite landed the tone it was going for at times. Like that definitely caught this, and I'm like, ooh, I'm see what they were trying to get to. Don't quite know if it hit the mark for me. Um, But I was still really excited to talk about this movie when it was put on that list because there is a lot to talk about here. And I have these really weird mixed feelings about this movie because when I finished my rewatch it rewatch of it last night, I shut off my television thinking like I hate this movie like hate it, hate it, hate it. But I can't wait to see what like the writer and director comes up with next. I feel like she's genuinely super talented and I want to watch more of her movies. And I got a lot out of what she was going for here, except for the humor. And then, you know, I slept on the movie, thought about it some more, did a few more notes. And I'm like, all right, hate is way too strong of a word. Like, you know, I think that that gut reaction, like when I shut off the TV, was way too much. I don't know if I'm going to revisit this movie in the near future, but it's definitely worth a watch. uh, And there's definitely a lot of ground to cover. Like, it's a very... There's a lot of meat on the bone. And I'm going to just echo what you both said. Like, it's a brilliant cast. And there are fantastic performances all around. Like, everyone is giving... A solid effort here can we just take a minute and say what a year for annabelle wallace yeah just it's so crazy because wow. like yeah
2: like i you wrote a note like you can't even really recognize her but that's because of the malignant wig uh that that's mm-hmm. what did that to her like this is kind of more what she looks like but yeah i didn't even because because uh, malignant came out first so like mm-hmm. uh whenever i watch this i literally didn't even uh recognize her but uh yeah uh what a year for her i mean kira knightley matthew good sope Dirisu. i mean we got a
1: really stacked cast in this one yeah but to go from malignant to this like two very different performances but two like brilliant performances like gets what she needs to do in each role and nails it in both roles like she's a highlight in both movies she made she made
2: my top 10 twice that yeah. Not not too many people have that honor because yeah. malignant was my number one that year.
1: And that's a solid yeah. choice for a number one. Malignant is brilliant. I would love love me some more malignant. Don't know if we'll ever see more of it. Unfortunately,
2: I have a sequel pitch. So if if somebody listens to me, I have a great sequel pitch for a
1: malignant too. James Wan, if you're out there, hear my friend Devon out. Big fan of uh, the Palm I mean- Pendulum, James Wan. <laughs>
0: If we can have Basket Case 2 and 3, we can have a malignant franchise.
1: There should be. There's going to be a Thanksgiving, too. I'm excited for that. I'm excited. I love it. There are leftovers. They lied. They They said there would be no leftovers. There are apparently leftovers. (laughs) I'm excited. Look, I loved it. Nicole's shaking her head. With disappointment, <sighs> we'll we'll chalk it up for uh, your your uh, Massachusetts bias for that one.
2: A lot yeah. of people
1: like this movie. Come on, a lot of people like Thanksgiving. People are gonna get mad. It's very high in my top ten for the year. It's like very high in my top ten. Although I think something else is gonna end up very high once I see it this coming week. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the background of this movie. Uh, Writer-director Camille Griffin, she spoke about trying to get funding for one of her scripts for years, but being unable to do so. She had written a bunch of dramas about dysfunctional middle class in the UK based on her own experiences and upbringing, but found it hard to find a buyer. And at that stage in her career, she had made like seven short films, but that was about it. Like, and she'd also been in a number of film sets working the camera. So she actually, when she was making this movie, had already like been behind the camera or in a number of film crews. So it wasn't a matter of like, oh, first time director, like, she, you know, like hope she's not in over her head. Like, no, she knew exactly what needed to get done uh, and was able to run like a very tight schedule and get everything done on time, which is remarkable considering what we'll talk about in a minute. So her son, Roman, was cast as the lead child in Taika Watiti's Jojo Rabbit. And while on set, Griffin had the realization that she's like, oh, I could actually turn some of my material into comedy. She figured if, like, TV could do it for the Holocaust, nothing would be out of bounds at that point, which, again, Nicole, I see you shaking your head.
0: Yeah, yeah. Feelings about that. But I like, I like
1: her. Espouse those feelings.
0: Well, I have very complex feelings about Jojo Rabbit, mm-hmm. but I think that Roman is really a good actor. Um, and so I, you know, um, Camille, it was interesting. I was reading an interview with her and she talked about, you know, growing up very posh. Um, I think she grew up in Suffolk mm-hmm. um, and um, had a very like privileged upbringing, but said that she always struggled because they you know, she's like people that are of a certain class are making decisions, but I don't think they should. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of bristle with that. And, but she's like, I'm also part of that. So how do I reconcile? Um, and so I like this idea of here is some material that I can put a comedic spin on. It feels, I mean, because everyone's talking about Saltburn and Emerald Fennell. This feels very much like Saltburn meets uh, The Happening, mm. uh, and I I like just her impulses there. And of course, like she has a really talented uh, a couple of her kids, all three of her kids I think were cast mm-hmm. um, in this. So
2: I didn't. You know. I didn't realize Roman was her kid uh, that until this rewatch whenever I was like, oh, shit. And, and it's so cool to not only like, you know, her kind of getting that realization from his project, you know, like it and to put into this one. And it's an interesting, like creative synergy between your kin. Like that's kind of something you dream about, you know, to like kind of have this and like and you see that brought out, too, because, you know, she really leans on Roman like quite heavy. She gives him a lot to do in this film and and you know and like this kid is phenomenal. I I can't wait to see him in more things cuz I think he is a yeah. uh, a super fantastic actor and and yeah that's a, I would love to see her and emerald Vanel like sit down and uh have a conversation cuz yeah the way that they kind of approached uh you know those feelings in different ways is uh very fascinating. Uh I would say this is uh the happening meets the invitation cuz I was like yeah. Uh, I was like, uh, I was like, uh, right. Will and Eden, uh, or not Will, but uh, David and Eden in uh, that movie. They would have loved this dinner party. They would have had a blast here at the Cylon Night dinner party.
1: If yeah, if Camille Griffin and Emerald Fennell want to get together and make Fennell's erotic Jurassic Park movie <laughs> come to fruition, I am here for <laughs> it. I am all for that. I am all for that happening. You know what? Make it. Will this into the world. Let's make it happen. Yeah, it is interesting that she did have all three of her children cast here as, like, the uh, children of, like, Nell and Simon. And most of it does fall on, like, Roman's shoulders. Like, he is definitely the lead. The other two kids, like the twins, like, they don't really have a lot to do. They play a little bit of the comic relief, Mm -hmm. but they're mostly in the background. Um, and, you know, you can see, I mean, Roman gets cast in a pretty big Oscar winning movie. You know, he's got some chops. He is a pretty talented child actor. I will talk about it. when We talk about the movie. I bristle with some of the choices they make just from a, a, a storytelling perspective. Just some of the things kind of like the out of the mouth of babes choices they have. But that might be a little nitpick. But we'll talk about that when we get to the to the, um film the film itself uh speaking to film inquiry griffin relayed a story like how she came up with the idea for silent night where her and her kids were watching uh war Horse, and they asked her like what would happen if there was a war and she replied well it'd be pretty bad there'd be a nuclear war and we'd have to live in a bunker and would just rot out and it would was a horrible conversation to have I said, we'll all end up in the forest shooting or eating each other. And then she laughed, or we just sort of lay down, take some medications, and go to sleep. So that was like a conversation I think she had while like giving her kids like baths, basically, after they asked. Well, so pretty hardcore conversation to have with like your young children. So would love to be a fly in the wall for some of the dinnertime conversations or maybe the choice of like bedtime stories.
2: I can totally feel that story in some of the scenes in this as well, just because Mm -hmm. they're, uh, you know, because of the circumstances, they're like letting the kids have these complicated conversations. And I'm always an advocate for like not talking down to kids like my parents were never that way with us. Like my same. if if you'd uh, quote uh, one of my dad's famous quotes, you know, is before he said something crazy, he'd be like, hey, you guys know me. I don't sugarcoat shit. And that that was always, you know, what he'd say before we end up having, like, a real Mm -hmm. serious dark conversation.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's... Oh, you first to call.
0: I do think, though, that that's an interesting setup of how the story kind of came together. Because, you know, the whole first chunk of this movie is them sugarcoating Mm -hmm. or trying to ignore any sense of reality um, in a lot of ways. So um, I I find that that was probably, you know, her as a parent maybe struggling with, you know, on one level you you do want to protect your kids and not talk about these topics. But at the same time, like, if your kids are going to be dying in a matter of hours, you probably should just be like so here's what's up Mm -hmm. and it sucks so i do again i i think that there's a lot of thoughtfulness that i think you're seeing just from the tip top of how this movie came together yeah
1: yeah and it's interesting too because i think you see a contrast between like these real life conversations and she said they led to conversations with her and her husband about that privilege and class and the responsibility and this story developing and then transposing that to the characters of like Nell and Simon, who aren't necessarily prepared to have those conversations with their kids. Like, you know, art wants to force those conversations and they're constantly steering him back to the party. Like, nope, we don't want to do this. You know, they'll like tiptoe around it, but like they don't want to entertain the conversations for too long, which is you know, we'll talk about that when we talk about the movie. Like I am more on Devon's, your dad's side of like, don't sugarcoat shit. Like I am definitely more of that parent, but God, that can be hard.
2: It it, it comes into like uh, some of the themes of autonomy that will mm-hmm. come up in the movie discussion.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Let's definitely, we'll dig into that. Um, her idea to set it at Christmas came because she liked the contrast. You know, she says Christmas is supposed to be this time of sentimentality and togetherness. So let's make the darkest possible story to contrast that. And I think it really works here. Like, unlike last week where we, you know, I pitched this idea that, like, it's a little bit cynical to set Better Watch Out at Christmas because otherwise the movie's good, but ultimately... Maybe a little disposable, where setting it during the holiday season now, whenever you, like you said, need those SEO clicks or need that clickbait, every year there's going to be those like 10 holiday horror movies you should watch. Like there's a really good chance Better Watch Out makes that list. This, I think, the Christmas setting really, really works. It's a great contrast and it's a smart move to set it here. Yeah, it, it's like I could see this
2: working also as a Thanksgiving movie or mm-hmm. or even a uh, uh, but I think I think New Year's Eve would have been too on the nose. Uh, mm-hmm. so I think yeah, Christmas was kind of the yeah. the perfect for the for the contrast yeah. of it. Thanksgiving just it's not a thing in
1: Britain. Oh yeah, that is also true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they always like when we call like uh, when we're off on Thanksgiving, we'll call my wife's family and they're like, "Yeah, we're just working today. It's just Thursday." And I'm like, I made this giant meal. And they're like, of course you did, uh, because you're like a big dude. I'm like, no, because it's Thanksgiving. So this script existed long before anyone had heard of COVID. The first draft, the cataclysmic event was actually going to be a virus. But Griffin's agent advised, like, no one's going to believe that. So the toxic fumes were substituted uh, as an idea like climate change was a much more believable idea for a cataclysmic event than, say, a virus wiping out millions of people, which, (laughs) whoops. Um, As the film was shooting, Griffin says, like, news of the virus started to emerge, but lockdowns were not yet in effect. And she actually talked to cinema scholars and she said of the shoot, it's a quote from her. Anyways, the pandemic grew as we were filming and we had a three and a half week shoot. And by the end of the third week, people were frightened. We wrapped early and then we were editing. And I think at the point we were, we, where we locked the edit, there wasn't a vaccine. They were still hoping to find the vaccine, but it wasn't being administered. It wasn't out in the public. So there were lots of things. Had I known then what I know now, obviously there might have been more delicate choices we would have made, but we were working in a bubble, not only a physical bubble, but an emotional bubble. We were all sitting in our homes going, what the hell's going on? So, you know, she talks about it being like a really fraught time, like that race to get things done. Like I think everybody knew everything was going to shut down, like February, March. by March, everybody knew, like, all right, things are going to be shutting down, and everybody was in a bit of a panic to get as much done as possible before that happened. Um, and then once that occurred, one of the, we can talk about it, like, to me, I think the scariest thing about the lockdown, or genuinely maybe the most upsetting thing, was we didn't have any idea of when it was going to end. Like if someone said, like, you're going to be in your homes for six months, this is when we think we're going to lift it. This is the end date. You can deal with that because, like, you can circle a day in the calendar and say this is how much time is left. Like it's how I get through the school year. I literally say this is the last day of school, and I can tell you right now, We are 57 days into the school year. I have 123 days left until summer break. I can tell you how many days there are 15 days until Christmas break and I get a week off. And it's how I get through. It's like it's what mentally lets me get through the year. Not if I didn't know that I would be a mess. Yeah,
2: that's that's very fascinating because I I like tracking the timelines of some of these movies that do kind of have, you know, illusions or you know feelings that we were having you know uh, due to coven it's kind of crazy that this was you know uh, so early in it because I see especially on rewatch I see so many things that I was like oh my goodness like this you know I really felt a lot of these certain things um, and so it's kind of fascinating to you know see see the way that that evolved and and I and like you had mentioned, like uh, it's kind of how they you know did it in this you know, which is you know they did have a a date in time that they knew that when the gas was going to be coming. So like you know, it, but even still, even still knowing, it still kind of you know had this other kind of fear for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think what's interesting too is that even though there's some certainty about you know this is when it's supposed to happen because obviously they're tracking it as it's spreading, um, there's still a lot of uncertainty about like, you know, what will this actually look like? We have this understanding of what we're being told, but I think that there's still kind of this seed of, you know, are we being lied to? Mm-hmm. Is, is there more information out there that we're not being told? And I think that's really where I think like what you were alluding to before from the mouth of babes yep. um, kind of comes in.
1: I'm actually here just like alluding um, to the idea of just making this thing, just like trying to get everybody locked in, just trying to get the film yeah. locked, making sure that all your parts are done So you can send everybody home safely and then editing it and going like, do we need pickup shots? Do I have to bring anybody back? Can we get into this line? I think they, I I believe I read they went back for like a week and actually filmed a little bit more uh, with a tight bubble at some point in 2020 um, to just like finish the picture and then got some pickup shots as well. So like a really, and we've seen There were like a lot of great indie films that came out in the wake of the pandemic that were like literally five person crews where you have like one or two performers, totally like tiny, tiny um, pandemic movies. I'm thinking like Benson and Moorhead doing like Digging in the Dirt was one of them. Um, Something in the Dirt. Something in the dirt. You're right. Thank you. Um, There's like a lot of like great little pandemic titles that have come out. Like The Harbinger um, by, um, oh God, I interviewed him and love him dearly. And now I'm drawing a blank in his name because I always do that. But The Harbinger, which is one of my favorite movies of last year, is another like great pandemic title. So people were able to create and do incredible things. But God love you. Like what a crazy time to do it.
2: Yeah, you had mentioned 2021 being, like, kind of a lost year for films. And honestly, like, that's, like, one, like, I had so many, like, of my favorites come out in that time because it was such a, a, you know, an interesting time that, like, yes, there were obviously, like, constraints, but then I feel like there was also, since, you know, these movies weren't going to theaters and stuff like that, there was also maybe a little bit more freedom, creatively, at least, with uh, Mm -hmm. telling
1: some of these stories as well. Yeah, Absolutely. The shackles are off a little bit. You can do whatever. I mean, we saw that with Host, right? I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of Host, uh, and I know I'm in the minority there, but they're like, yeah, we can just do a 60-minute movie. That's as long as the story needs to be, so we'll just make it 61 minutes because that's all we need, and people loved it.
2: Yeah, I think, I think that movie, like, kind of was, you know, even though, because I'm kind of the same way, I thought it was, like, you know, it was fun for what was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it gave people hope that it's like, oh, no, like, we can still make movies, we can still make art, and we can still have these things, uh, even in this
1: time, you know. Mm-hmm. I can tell you who loves Hosts. Teen Girls. Cause that was like my daughter's birthday party movie. They watch it in the basement and we were like sitting right above them in the living room. And I could time like where they were in the movie based on like when the screams were coming. So we're like, all right, there's 40 mo- minutes left. There's 35 minutes left. So it was pretty much like that. Again, we'll talk really briefly about this cast uh, cause it is like pretty much stacked from top to bottom Uh, At the lead, there's Keira Knightley, you know, obviously best known for the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Um, She has gone on to not only do that, but excuse me for one second here. Now, she does a lot of period pieces like Pride and Prejudice. She's done Atonement, the imitation game, which she did with Simon Good. But again, best known as Elizabeth Swan from the P- Pirates of the Caribbean series. And she received this script when she was about seven months pregnant and read it and thought it was one of the funniest scripts that she had ever received. And then after she gave birth, she read it again when her child was about five months old and then had a completely like different reaction finding the script like really chilling. And really dark and really scary, which man, what a vibe check, like only about a six or seven month swing there. And she's like, this is horrifying.
0: Yeah. Um, that there, there have been other, I think films where, you know, an actor has had a kid or gone through like a major life experience after, you know, first getting the script or hearing about a, a film. And then all of a sudden they're like, wow, this material is completely uh, different now yep. in a certain perspective. And I I think you do see that I think in her performance. I really like her. She's, I mean, I know that she's known for doing her period pieces, mm-hmm. but she's also really great in uh, um, Never Let Me Go, which is mm. kind of an indie with uh, Carrie Mulligan, Andrew Garfield, and it's really, um, really kind of dark and sad. Um, she was in Cronenberg's Dangerous Method. Um, so I, I like her, and I think, yeah, this cast is absolute bangers. Stacked. Yes.
1: Yeah, you have, uh, Matthew Good playing opposite her as her husband, Simon. He had appeared with her in the Imitation Game. Before that, he had done uh, Watchmen, where he plays Osmandius. He appeared in Stoker. Uh, and he was also the lead in the show. I think it's on AMC and Shudder, uh, The Discovery of Witches. So he's playing the dad here. This is one of the first major roles for Lily Rose Depp. Uh, daughter of Johnny Depp. So, I mean, probably best known for the Idol at this point, which I think more people kind of talked about on social media than actually ever watched. I know I've never watched that show. Like, I'm definitely aged out of that particular television show. Prior to this, like, really, aside from some random one-shots, like, she had done, like, two Kevin Smith movies. Like, she was, like, a clerk in the movie Tusks, and then she had done uh, another Kevin Smith movie, Yoga Hosers. They're which... uh, connected. It's the same. Yeah. Playing the... Same character, yeah. right? hmm Yeah. I have not seen Yoga Hosers. I... Don't bother. ...kind of re- refuse to believe it actually exists. Don't, don't, don't watch it. It's, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's tough. But uh,
2: yeah, she's uh, she's best friends with uh, Kevin Smith's daughter, uh, Harley Quinn Smith. Yeah. yeah,
1: Good for her. Good for them both. I love Kevin Smith. It'll be hard for me to ever say a bad word about him. I just think the worst thing that ever happened to him is he realized, he said, I have like 2 million followers on Twitter. What if I just make movies for them? Like that maybe was the worst decision in terms of filmmaking that he ever made. He just kind of stopped challenging himself. But whatever, you know what? Like we still have clerks and mall rats and... Chasing Amy and Dogma, and all those fun movies that I really like. And some would say they don't like those either, so that's another story. Mm -hmm. Uh, Soap Dirisu stars as co stars as James. He's done some great work, like co-lead of the show *Gangs of London*, and then he did *His House* for Netflix, uh, which is awesome. You want to talk about a, a gut punch of a movie? That
2: movie is—that's yeah. a heavy movie, and and I love—I—I yeah. I, I really hope that I'll be able to pull a clip from this movie, like here in the future, because they've been you know trying to figure out who's going to be the next James Bond. Uh, A Mm -hmm. lot of people on Twitter have thrown around uh, Dear Sue's name. And then there's a line in the movie where uh, Amber Walsh's character calls him James Bond. And I was like, so I'm really hoping he actually does get cast just so I can pull the clip from this film of
1: her uh, calling him James Bond. Yeah, they even. Yeah, you're right. They reference that in the movie. Like you look like James Bond and they all look at. They all look at her funny, but you're, he kind of does. I mean, he would be a great James Bond because he's got the action oh, chops for sure. Because I feel like Idris Elba, like the time has maybe passed, yeah. like he might have aged out of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd still go watch it. I mean, I'm not a big James Bond guy, so what do I know? Like, I probably wouldn't go see it only because like I've watched three James Bond movies my whole life so like who am i kidding um although i I don't know maybe i'd watch the first one rufus jones who plays tony the kind of like sad sack husband of i want to say sadie and i'm completely wrong because I always get names wrong. It's not good. Not good when you talk to people for a living and you forget names all the time. Husband of Sandra, Annabelle Walls of Sandra. So Rufus Jones is w- like the British version of the American that guy. He has one of those faces when you see him, you're like, I've seen him in things before. And that's because like, seriously, in the past five years, the guy has played like, Five hundred different roles, and if you have a subscription to BritBox, which is like a British television streaming service, you've probably seen him in about forty different things. So he's just—I work. You know, he just <laughs> takes every single role that comes to him, which good for him. He's pretty, pretty good here. You know, not much of a role. Kind of a, maybe one of the more thankless ones, but what can you do? But again, top to bottom, like. Awesome cast,
2: yeah, really great chemistry. Like, uh, mm-hmm. like, but whether it be the you know interrelationships of like those that are married, or like mm-hmm. also like because they're all college friends, you definitely feel that. Like, so I, I think that even though you know not all of them have you know some uh, some of them have more spotlight moments than others,
1: uh, they still yeah. very uh, they congeal very nicely. Yeah. So the last note I'll make is the song that's featured. Uh, and the opening credits like the opening montage and then kind of like the closing montages. everybody is taking the pill and Nicole is like she's actually turning red like she's angry mm-hmm. right now like she's so mad. Michael Bublé's The Christmas Sweater Song which is like this really jaunty little Christmas tune kind of one of the rare and I don't think it's caught on because I don't hear this song played across like Christmas playlists or Christmas stations like not like a Mariah Carey all I want is Christmas banger well because Buble has put out like
2: multiple Christmas albums because nobody cares to listen to his regular music uh, mm-hmm. so he's like oh well I'll get them for Christmas uh, you know so I mean it, it, it was fitting and it was a it was a fun little way to introduce the characters at the beginning you know okay. I'll, I'll say that.
0: This is how you know it's a horror movie. <laughs> it's that it starts out with "buble." Um, I hate the song. I hate "buble." Um, as much as I hate the song, um, but I think the song is kind of perfect because it does have a slightly like more ominous kind of opening to it. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, I do appreciate the vibe, and and I do think that you know the whole. Scene of them in the car um, driving up, uh, I think is really cute when, when she's telling her girlfriend, I really like this song. And the girlfriend is very much like me, like, No, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, please just start. Please just shut it off. So, a, a couple things
1: about it was not written for this movie, but it was released around the same time. I'm actually surprised they got through. I'm sure it's not cheap to get the music rights for a song like this, especially f- I mean, like whatever we think about the guy, like he's a pretty big recording artist. So I'm sure like it's probably not cheap to get the rights. And this is what he had to say. My God, like this is AI generated quote right here. And this is the sweet, meaningful story that the song depicts has touched the hearts of his fans across the world. While talking to CNN, the singer revealed Hanging out with my family and all our relatives and friends, for me, there's nothing better than that. He added, also added, to me, the holidays are about bringing people together and being with family. It's no secret it's my favorite time of the year. The holidays are a time to step back and cherish your loved ones. He further said he used to sing and dance to Christmas songs like Feliz Navidad and Santa Claus is Coming to Town and more with his family during Christmas. And to me, it is like, I am a human. I love Christmas. I swear I'm a human. (laughs) Like, can you picture Frank Sinatra saying something like Frank Sinatra would beat the shit out of like a a reporter that asked him something like that. And then he's like, I got to go bang Ava Gardner. Get out of here with this. Just stop, you know? Miss you, Frank.
0: God, he's so... Ah. It's
1: the most PR generated. So he doesn't talk about the movie being... There's no word whatsoever about like oh yeah by the way this song is going to be in a new horror movie where everybody commits mass suicide at the end and then the world ends like no word about that but he talks like the music video is apparently about uh the christmas sweater trying to convince a woman to wear it and then someone wears a matching sweater at a party and they go home together so the message is like wear an ugly christmas sweater to a party and you'll get laid. So,
2: you know, continuing the trend yeah.
1: of slightly creepy Christmas songs. Yeah. Lovely. So that's the background. And let's talk about this movie. Now we did a little bit, but let's kind of dig in. And I, I'll ask you both. Cause I've kind of chatted here a lot. What do you both make of like the opening montage that sets up this movie? You know, you have the jaunty tune, whatever you think of the tune, It is jaunty. It is, you know, I think what you would typically see in a happy, upbeat, kind of like light comedy. How do these first like say five to 10 minutes kind of like set up and set up like this movie on a tee for what it's about to deliver? It it does an
2: interesting thing of because, yeah, it is very merry. It is very kind of, uh, you know, kind of supposed to have this like warmth feeling to it. But then you can still see with some of the actors, like you can like see like a layer of like unsureness to them. And, you know, and it can go to, you know, the way that people kind of feel about holidays in general. Like, oh, like what if I have something going on in my life, but Hey, I got to make this appearance at the family thing. So I got to pretend like I'm, you know, doing all good, you know, and everything. So it's like, it kind of has that layer to it. But then on the rewatch is whenever you can kind of, you know, see some of the nods uh, as to the things that are going to happen. And again, like, the language that they use of like, oh yeah, I had to go, you know, wrestle uh, this away from somebody at the grocery store. You know, people always say that, but then they actually mean it. In this one, when we, you know, kind of know the premise of this, so like, uh, uh, it, it's a lot more interesting on the rewatch, uh, kind of uh, looking at like the little details on the way that the characters are, you know, approach, uh, you know, the way that they're feeling as they're approaching this party.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the the opening montage is so important because you really need to establish some personality bits of these characters. Because we want to be able to, I mean, if you go in kind of knowing what the film is and how it's going to play out, you, you kind of want to... Get to know these folks so you understand, like, what kind of journey they're going to be going on as they're in this house, kind of dealing with what's happening outside. Mm-hmm. Um, I always, I, one thing, and it's, this is probably nothing and just me being ridiculous. Um, but one thing I did notice, um, in my most recent rewatch of this was that, um, art. Cuts himself, bleeds on the carrot, and he is the only one that is bleeding at the end. Not counting the person who was stabbed, um, but bleeding from the illness. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought that that was kind of an interesting Mm. thing, kind of like marking him a bit from the beginning. Yeah. Setting him
1: aside as someone a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I like what you said there too, Devon, about like, this could be either thing. Like on first watch, you know, you do have these persons, like you have Lily Rose Depp's character of Sophie, who is um, new. Like she doesn't know these people. Like she's just showing up for the first time. And kind of, like, going to their house. And then you have um, Alex, who is, like, the girlfriend of of uh, Bella, who is just kind of tolerating these people in a way. Like, she's not around her own mom, and she's just, like, in some ways kind of dragged along for it. And, like, all right, I'm spending Christmas not necessarily with strangers, but not necessarily with people that I would choose to spend christmas with outside of like my girlfriend um and they're like what madcap family shenanigans are gonna ensue and then you have got kitty who's kind of like the veruca salt like very very big like veruca salt from willy wonka vibes we're getting from her you know kind of spoiled daddy's little girl i want it now vibes from her and it does kind of give off like we're gonna have like a merry, funny, madcap comedy, until it it's no longer that. Like it's not really hinted at in these opening ten minutes or so.
2: Yeah, it's like in, and you still see them doing like you know the the preparations that you normally would for mm-hmm. for a holiday gathering, but then like with like just like little slight differences. Like whenever yeah. um, Nell is like kind of going around picking up, she is like. Throws the the like bed sheets in the trunk because it's like oh well I don't really need to make the bed today you know for what's gonna happen later you know so like you're kind of seeing uh, some of those little details you're seeing uh, yep. Matthew Good chucking the chickens over the fence uh, and mm-hmm. and and with uh you know and the way that they talk about Kitty is very funny because like you know we all have uh, that family member that. Honestly, nobody really likes. But hey, we mm-hmm. we we love them because they're family. But then, just because of the circumstance, they're able to talk about it even more openly. They're just like, "Oh yeah, Kitty fucking sucks." Like, is she coming? <laughs> oh, we could have just left her at home. And then they're like, "Oh well, we couldn't just leave her at home." And then they're like, "Well, couldn't you <laughs> if you really wanted to put her down early?" Because that that was a the line. They were like, "Oh, what well, were we supposed to just put her down? You know, and leave her?" <laughs> and it's like, "Oh, yep. now I know what you guys were talking about." Like, they're literally yeah. just open when they talk
1: about oh we hope that uh, Kitty's the first one to go <laughs> Yeah, I might even be that family member to some of my relatives to be quite honest <laughs> so um, here's a general question I have so we get this setting and it's this gorgeous estate like beautiful posh home everyone is dressed like they're in tuxedos and luxurious outfits it is like an obscenely wealthy estate, huge manor, like these lovely grounds, not a person that's around them. How do we, I feel like as an American audience, like we are way cooler with spending time with like obscenely wealthy British people than we are with like an American wealthy family. And maybe I'm completely wrong. Like maybe I'm, Stating my own biases here, but there seems to be like, all right, wealthy British people, like totally cool. Something seems totally we're either like your Ebenezer Scrooge, like you're or like Scrooge McDuck, like you have all the money in the world, or you're Tiny Tim and Oliver Twist, like you have no money and you're just like shoveling gruel down your throat, like there's no in between. And we will watch like downtown Abbey and the crown and all like consume that. Like there's no tomorrow and have no problem with it. Why are we cooler with watching like rich British people? I guess is what I'm fumbling around with here.
0: I think it's because it, we can pretend it doesn't have that direct impact on us. Okay. That that system doesn't have that direct impact Mm -hmm. on us. I think what is cool about this movie is that they talk about it. They talk about like, well, is the queen like, is the queen in her bunker? Is she eating dog food? Um, which I love how that keeps coming back. <laughs> and I love the moment at during the dinner where Matthew Good has to tell Karen Knightley, like, no, the dog food is actually because she has dog. She's not eating the dog food. She's like, oh, right. Um, yeah, and I think it's also very interesting because we find out that this as that this is a family home, that it's not Kira mm-hmm. and Matthew Good's home, that it's her parents'. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just think that we're fine with it because it's well, we're away from that. We broke away from that. We made a point to break away from that system, so we're we don't have to involve ourselves in it. And but that's kind of a fallacy in and of itself. Yeah.
2: I think Nicole hit it really on the head is, yeah, we're just not as connected to it. We don't understand their kind of wealth and class system uh, as much as we understand our own. Um, and, and yeah. And, and I f- think this one is interesting. Like this is, you know, kind of a more fair portrayal of like, you know, cause I wouldn't consider this like an eat the rich movie because it's not because it's kind of like everybody in the world, but But this kind of puts it in a context, though, that it's like, as much as we do love to see rich people suffer from time to time, hey, not every rich person in the world is evil. You know, they're also still human beings themselves, and they're also going to also die themselves as well. You know, so, you know, I think the inevitableness of this situation. Um, But we don't need to see like the extra uh, of them being cut down to size, you know, like, Oh, let me take you down a few notches. It's like, they're already be taken down a few notches in a few hours, you know? So it's like, we don't really need to have the um, in this film, like some sort of, uh, you know, eat the rich commentary for
0: this. Well, I still think that the eat the rich commentary pokes through but in a very subtle way, like the conversation that um, Art and his dad have when it's revealed that not everyone has received the exit pill um, and, you know, it's really uncomfortable. Um, and Art is like, I want to, you know, be honest with me. Are there people who haven't been given this pill? And I want to know why. And we learn that folks that are experiencing experiencing homelessness, illegal immigrants, and probably other populations aren't getting access to this exit pill. And the whole idea of this exit pill is that it's supposed to make everything easier. Like you just die painlessly. Although I think we learned that that's not even necessarily um, true. So... I, I think that you're exactly right, Devon. I think it, it doesn't have to be... This isn't... It, it's not a film about that, so it doesn't have to make it kind of the centerpiece. Yeah. But I like that it's still threaded through very delicately.
1: Yeah, I do like the way Art and Simon's conversation touches on that, because it... it It speaks to like, do we, what do we owe our population? And in the case like this, like there should be some dignity in death. And the sad thing here is like, like, I think Simon says to his son, well, technically these people don't exist, which is a really chilling thing to say to your son. Like, well, these persons don't exist. And his son Art says like, well, of course they do. Like what a ridiculous thought. It's like, well, according to the government, They don't exist. And that's a really scary, sad and very true thing. Like it's probably the most honest thing that Simon says, or one of the most honest things that Simon says to his kid, the whole movie, he's right. Like according to the government, like you're right. Homeless persons don't exist. The unhoused don't exist. The persons that are undocumented in the country don't exist to them. And it's silly to not give them the pill because a those things probably cost pennies to create and B who cares? You don't need money anyway at this point. Like money yeah. <laughs> no longer has any, my first thought was like, these things only cost pennies to create. And then I'm like, but money doesn't even have meaning anymore. And then the thought was like, it's all about making someone suffer in the end. And that there is like, in the end there's some bureaucrat taking his pill Washing it down with like a hundred dollar swig of like a McKellen 12 and thinking, well, at least I got to make somebody suffer is one of my last acts. And that's what it comes down to is needless. The cruelty is the point. And I think that's what Griffin is saying here is that there is always going to be a certain class of persons. And I don't mean class as in class structure but like a certain type of person and they're usually in power because they want to achieve power that is going to make others want to suffer that that's the whole point of their existence yeah
0: Yeah, and i feel that that's in the interview that i was reading with the director i think that that's what she was really zeroing in on with some of the ideas that she wanted to expound on you know based on her upbringing of why you know why are people in my situation um my standing in life able to make some of these choices about what matters who matters in society um and how you grapple with that and again like what what do you do when when that's a, a reality how do you
2: yeah it's fascinating, the the point that you made that it's like, yeah, like, why wouldn't everybody get this? If the world's ending, money is not going to be a thing anymore. We're not, you know, like, it, 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 there's no cost for supplies, you know, at this mm-hmm. point. Um, so I find that fascinating because during uh, whenever the vaccine was released, um, I was working at Dodger Stadium. I was uh, there at the, the vaccination sites. And the hardest part of that was, like, I was put in this position because... Uh, if you guys remember when it came out there were the tears on like who mm-hmm. on who gets it at certain points. So it was such a like it was an impossibly hard thing for me to have to tell people like, because people would, show up even if they weren't in the tier and be like well i'm here already why don't you just give it to me you know and it was because like you know we had a limited supply for like that day they had very tight expiration dates things like that and they couldn't also over like they couldn't make extras like it was like you we make it for the day for this amount of people and that's the reason that we did so like we would literally have to like have people that waited three hours in line thinking that they were going to slip through and like get it and then we're Mm -hmm. like no I'm sorry like you got to go because the other people and like so like the way that they made those tiers out of you know who should get it, it was like elderly was the top and then it was like first responders and then and then it like kind of went by age groups and things like that and it was like kind of wondering like how did they come up with this tier system to designate who it's more important to get this now when we all everybody wants everyone to have it but we had to have some sort of like structure to it um you know which was you know it was it was fucking tough like I you know I had people screaming in my face you know because they were you know super upset that they couldn't you know get it at yeah. the time that they wanted to so uh yeah very fascinating to see that in this as well
1: yeah
0: well and you get into the conversation that Sophie has which I really love that she, despite being the new person, and obviously I think a little bit nervous about being there, she doesn't hold back um, because Kitty makes the comment they're talking about the queen. And, you know, I, it's a complicated thing because I kind of see where Kitty is coming mm-hmm. from with the queen, <laughs> especially being like
1: 112. Uh, yeah, and yeah bones like bones are made of dust
0: yeah, like, yeah, you know, I, she's fine. Like, do we really have to worry about her? Um, but Sophie, and I do this all the time, um, I'm that person that will be like, okay, well, first off, fuck you and your ageism. Um, even though you're a child, fuck you and your ageism. And let me lay down some hard truths about why are we making these delineations about what populations matter and I mean I I love that this is again it's getting into not just kind of the class piece but um I think especially you know our own experiences with the vaccines and even beyond that just the COVID experience overall and how certain populations Mm -hmm. you know had a much rougher go um because of how people, you know, were like, they don't really matter. Um, You know, if they get sick, they get sick. They're sick anyway. So um, I don't know. I I just really appreciate that the film has these conversations, but I think then you have these characters that are like, all right, let's move on. No more shut up let it go
1: let's talk more about that dinner conversation because i noted that here because i think there's a lot going on in that conversation and i think it it's fascinating i get what um sophie is arguing for there and i don't think the conversation that wallace's character is going for i don't think sandra is necessarily trying to be cruel or ageist. I think she's trying to offer like a kind of false comfort to the kids. And I think that is something we often like when our parents are older and they're sick. Yeah, Um, It's something that we would say like something that a conversation I'm going to have to have with my daughter at some point. And it's a conversation that like my, wife had with her mother when her father was very ill and was in hospice was like well dad lived like a very full life he had a very long life he was happy he raised a wonderful family like he lived a life like and this is what we all come to in the end and it wasn't like well he deserves to die or there's nothing more it's like no there's nothing more that could be done for him but we can still celebrate like the life that he had um, and I think what Sandra's trying to offer theirs less about, well, these people don't deserve medication or a chance to live. It's more like there's nothing that can be done. We can celebrate the fact that they had an opportunity to live like a full life. Does that I don't know if that makes sense. I get what you're saying. We're like in other circumstances, if you're like, hey, there's this medicine that can like it can exempt you from, you know, Pain. you won't die from yeah. this thing you won't like if we give you this medicine you will not die from this mist but we're not going to give it to you because you're above 75 years old and you've had your run grandpa you're all done that would be more to me like ageism
0: yeah but we're still talking about pain Mm -hmm. and like if we're all gonna die but these people get a more comfortable exit Right, like that's the point. They get to be in their posh house with people that they love. Right, um, and they just get to take a pill, lay down, um, and go out who, peacefully. What am I missing? Because who was she saying
1: wasn't going to get? Because they weren't talking about the homeless there, at that part of the dinner. Like who was she saying? I think she was just saying it's okay that like some per like the queen is going to die because she's lived a very long life. Like she wasn't saying she deserved to die painfully.
0: Yeah. But I think they're also talking about because there's, and and maybe I'm misremembering bits and pieces um, in a certain order, but I think we also get the the, uh, there's also art is kind of interjecting into the conversation because he's seeing the headlines on the packages because they've, which I think is brilliantly morbid. Mm-hmm. They've wrapped up the gifts in these newspapers mm-hmm. all about like this impending doom. And so he's looking at it and asking questions. And I think that that's fueling a lot of the conversation at the table. And so I think there's kind of two different conversations mm-hmm. happening. One is about, um, you know, to to what you're saying, you know well someone that's older and is passing away they've lived a life and that's worth celebrating like they've had different experiences and just as we would if they were to pass naturally we we recognize and celebrate that they had a long life yeah um yeah. but i think that there's also some interjection about well does she have the pill um does she have the exit pill and I, I think that there's some back and forth there, which then mm-hmm. shifts the conversation okay. to someone saying, and I think it's actually Kitty who it, mm-hmm. in her asshole mode says, well, does it even matter? Um, and It's
1: the worst. If we can agree on yeah. one thing.
0: And so that's, I think where I, I think that's what like spurs Sophie to say like, well, fuck you! Like, no, she just because someone is old doesn't mean that they deserve to wither in pain. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it, it like kind of opened the floodgates, and and it it did in a way because you know Sandra is trying to, you know, they like whenever they ask about the queen, then they like kind of trying to make it into a joke a little bit, but then it's also. Uh, they pretty much point out, like, well, why are we even talking about the queen? Because we already know that she's gonna be fine and comfortable. Why don't we talk about the people that aren't? You know, like that's kind of where the conversation shifts. Because mm-hmm. like we we don't need to talk about the queen and her things. Like, what well, you know, and you know, Sandra's trying to like make jokes about it and things like that to like try and keep it light. But then, but her trying to cover you know up the conversations that need to be have is what, you know, makes them kind of boil over to the surface and then, you know, the, you know, kind of goes to this more tension-filled conversation and and I think it's a this is the point in the film though where they do start letting the kids voice their opinions and be like, okay, like the, we're we're kind of uh, in a spot where it's unavoidable. So like, let's go ahead and let the kids have their say, you know, and start saying stuff. But then once it starts getting once the kids start making points, that's when the uh, that's when Simon's like, OK, well, let's not talk about this anymore, you know, because they are, you know, making points that, you know, that the uh, that the parents kind of refuse to uh, acknowledge and like or they, that they know is there. But they don't want to talk about like the actual points that they have, you know, so like that's kind of how the, the, the tension like kind of gets upped in this in this sequence.
1: Devon, how do you feel about Simon's role in all this? Cause you can watch his discomfort growing throughout this scene where he's doing his best. Like he's well, part of it is he wants to protect the children from this conversation. I feel like that's a cover. He's not ready to have these conversations. Like he's using the kids almost as a cover for himself, like his own fear. He's very scared. He admits at the end, like I'm terrified, which is totally understandable. Like, Hey, not going to blame him but he's not ready to have these conversations and he's telling Sophie like I need you to back off like and you are a guest in our home stop doing this and Sophie is gonna press forward anyway so I hear what you're saying I'm still like and I see that line that you just drew in the sand allow me to just like step over that line I mean yeah let me let me go ahead and take this moment to say so every
2: every year I give an award out uh, I call it the horror good boy of the year because most men in horror movies suck, but you know what? There are ones that are, 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 good ones. And, and Simon was my good boy of 2021 because he is flawed. And I will say this dinner scene is kind of the, the part where uh, you kind of see some of the, um you know, the, the flawedness of his character because, but he is just trying so hard. Like, that's the thing, like, they they even like they allow the kids to like you know cuss and things like that and like and in certain circumstances you know if this was the case I know certain families would just be like ah no rules at all like do whatever you want but even in this circumstance he is still trying to be a good dad he is still trying to mm-hmm. um you know protect his kids and he's trying to do these things and uh, I just see that throughout the whole film like he really is just like trying so hard to like you know keep a balance between like. Yes, we do need to have this kind of stuff and like yes we need to have this. Um I think um in any other instance, yeah, Sophie would kind of be overstepping their bounds, but considering the the circumstances one, she chose to spend this apocalypse with you guys. So like at this point she's not even just a guest anymore. She should be considered family because she is there with you guys. And and it would also be rude to like also like not let her be able to say her piece and like kind of have to just wrestle with these thoughts on her own, you know. Like, I think you know, that's kind of uh, certain things that uh, kind of keep coming up is like you know, the the uh, again, like the autonomy and choices, like oh, like you know, well, she's dealing with it in this way, like and it, we need to be fair to her, like because uh, I, I love the recurring thing that Nell keeps saying throughout the movie that uh, this is all about truth and love, it's all about truth and love and togetherness, and it's like. Well, if it's actually about truth, then like we would be having these conversations throughout the night. The only thing that I would say uh, is uh, Simon could have been like, hey, let's not do this at dinner so that way we can enjoy the meal. But like if he would have said, hey, guys, we're going to have dinner. And then afterwards, we're going to have like a just sit around discussion and we can air these things out. So like that's the kind of part that I can see that like he did wow. really just want to have this like one nice meal and then it kind of goes to that point. But like so
1: he he could have made just more of a distinction that way. What do you think? I, I like what you're saying there. And that does make a lot of sense about Sophie at this point. I mean, this is their last Christmas, like she should be considered maybe part of the brood and part of the family and not really a stranger at this point. Although that is, it's still pretty hard sometimes to take somebody that is like very new in. Um, And a lot of it is just Simon's own discomfort and Simon's got to learn to maybe sit with it a little bit. And I think maybe one of the things I struggle with, with this movie, like one of the reasons why I take it down a peg is like it. And it's funny to say a movie about the end of human civilization as we know it, the stakes don't feel large enough, but I think like the big issue I have with it is like the stakes within this family often don't feel large enough. Like we move from the dinner scene to like, after they give out the presents, you kind of do have that conversation where Sandra gets a little bit tipsy and she is sitting next to her husband, Tony And looks at James and is like, why didn't you ever fuck me? And that is, like, the biggest stakes that there are at that point. And it's resolved pretty quickly with no hard feelings. Like, I feel like a um, little bit better version of this movie, you have this family that like there's this real tension that's never been resolved and this is the last night they're going to have to resolve it before they go to their maker and there's some real issues that they've never gotten into here everybody seems to really like one another and i think the issue i have is why am i spending time with this particular family on the last night on earth And you covered Hitchcock recently on Spectre Cinema Club. Like you did a Mm -hmm. deep dive into Hitchcock, right? So I think about the opening of Psycho. And I think about Hitchcock's camera work where you have like a long shot of the hotel. And that camera starts moving towards like an open window. And it could have moved into any of those windows and settled on any number of stories and it just happened upon Miriam crane's hotel room and it decides to tell that story because it was the most interesting one why is the camera settling on this particular family story because they're not that particularly interesting of a family to me at the end of the day yeah maybe it's to kind
2: of have that you know that ability to you know paste anybody's kind of feelings mm-hmm. onto this family. You know, kind of in that way. Because um, yeah, I think maybe it. Cause I think maybe it would have. It, it was trying to also have these people like confront stuff because I think if we were kind of you know um, focusing on like more of a middle class family or even like lower ca- class family. Um, there's going to be kind of different issues. And I think just due to the fact that this movie is an apocalypse end of the world movie, um, you know, I don't think the stakes are, you know, higher in any degree because the stakes are all the same for everybody, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like when there's, when all the stakes are the same, is there any stakes at all? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because they're what? yeah they're they're not too terribly interesting. And yeah, the, like because I, I if I have one quibble, because I do love that open conversation scene, um, just in the mm-hmm. w- because I think it's well performed. Like the the look on Tony's faces, you know, Sandra, like you know, like uh, and like uh, and Nell and Nell and Simon just cracking up as like these like things about you know who who fucked Tony on their break and like not fucking James. Um, Yeah, Mm -hmm. like it's a very well-performed scene, but at the same time, yeah, yeah, I definitely would have liked there to been like more like secrets uh, that come Mm -hmm. up or like, you know, more things that kind of have a little bit more moral weight to them. Um, But then I guess it's also uh, at the end of the day, hey, we're all going to die here. So like, do we really need to drudge up the the, like real serious Mm -hmm. stuff that we talk about? Like, these are just like kind of the fun things that like have been on our mind, like that do matter, but also aren't. Uh, as dire sure.
0: I think that it also is speaking to what is important to these people they're a little self-centered mm-hmm. um, and so when you're facing the end of your life and you want to you know have these conversations you're going to want to have conversations about the things that matter to you and what matters to her is James why didn't you fuck me um, so I I think it's appropriate I think also outside of Sophie you know they talk a little bit about everyone that's there taking this oath um, to take the exit pill um, but I would perhaps make a wager that there is a little bit more to the oath as well to say like we don't want there to be lots of drama we don't Mm -hmm. you know because to what Devon said earlier is Nell always comes back to uh truth and love and so I think that they're playing kind of kind of both ends they want to be able to have difficult conversations knowing that they're going to naturally occur but they also want to gloss over any real issues and just make it seem like this is any other you know slightly uncomfortable uh, group gathering well
1: speaking on that and speaking on like truth i think in the film doesn't necessarily tackle it but i think just by the nature of its setting just by the fact that it's like set on this estate like it's the it's the mother's home but it's so isolated from everybody else that that is like privilege in and of itself. Like these, this group of persons, like they don't have to face the end of the world with anybody else. And Devon, you hit on this earlier when you talked about like, Hey, I was at the shop and I had to wrestle someone for that last ham. Like, and that's kind of a humorous line, but you can imagine that like, elsewhere in the country like if you're in a city or if you're in a suburb or really anywhere else like it's probably a lot of chaos in the streets like it's probably a lot of panic there's probably a lot of unrest and there's probably a lot of bad actors that are like hey it's the last night on earth i can do whatever i want there's like no repercussions um so there's probably a lot of fear as well they get to isolate themselves from all of that and there is a certain amount of privilege that comes with that and the film itself isn't necessarily tackling that except and it's really a budget necessity it's like we don't have the money to set it in this huge setting but it kind of like addresses it by not addressing it
2: yeah there's kind of like some slight allusions to previous things like nell talking about Mm -hmm. going to a store and couldn't get regular sparkling water because it was all out Mm -hmm. or uh these different things and which is also a crazy allusion to real life when everybody was nabbing up all the toilet paper during lockdown Mm -hmm. um uh, and and then there's also like the funny line where it's like they forgot like the the sticky toffee pudding and need it and tony's like kind of worried to go back out he's like oh wait i I don't want to go do that and then like and what do i do and she's like oh you know take a mallet and just go rob the place (laughs) uh it was uh kind of like a, a a funny line but but yeah uh because I'm curious, Mike, because, I mean, we, we did a lot of the Purge movies together, and since you're not a big fan of this one, um, if if there was a version of this movie where more of these, like, darker secrets and stuff kind of do come out, and then it kind of uh, descends into a little bit more chaos, and, like, what if, like, they all, like, end up killing each other in the house and nobody takes the pill, would that be more your type of movie for this? And, like, kind of seeing more of the, I don't the, think the, so. the p-
1: stuff in the streets as well? Honestly, I don't think I need that for this movie. I don't think I need to see the, I think it's a really, because the acting is so strong. I think it's like a really well done contained bottle movie. I think where it, and maybe we'll have this conversation now because I think where it's pitched as like a horror comedy. A lot of the comedy to me, it fails to be funny in way too many instances. Like it just after that opening montage and after maybe like some of the dinner scene, just none of the humor lands. Like some of the jokes they have, like, oh, Greta skipped school for this. Like, oh, that's so on the nose or the conversation where it's like, oh. We should have voted Green Party fucking conservatives. Like, it's so on the nose that it's like, man, that's not really... It just doesn't land. The example I have is at the end of the movie, Simon is tasked with getting his two twin boys a full can of soda. Because he's promised them when you take the pill, you're going to be able to, like, have a can of fizzy drink and... Uh, with a cold can of soda and that's and it's like done to exaggerated effect at first like it's only one can of soda to share and you promise us a whole can and then it's like it's warm and then they spilled part of it so now you have to get one to top it off and make sure it's even and like simon and it's well acted and it's well done and simon has like to comic effect or what should be comic effect increasingly exaggerated reactions to all of this but the humor doesn't land it doesn't play as funny to me you said this earlier when like simon is like your good boy horror guy of the year it plays to me as like this is simon's last act as a father Hmm. he is going to the last thing he's going to ever get to do as a dad is get his boys a can of soda And God damn it, he's going to make it perfect. And he's flustered and he's scared. And he's trying to choke down his own fear. And his other son doesn't know what's going on with him. But by God, he can get his his kids a can of soda. So it doesn't really play as funny to me. It plays as a dad trying to do right by his boys one last time. Because that will be their last memory of him. What is a little bit funny is when they see Art and he's like bleeding out. And he and Nell are like, fuck the kids. And they grab their soda and choke down their pills and then give them back their Coke. That's funny. Like, that's the one thing that made me laugh at the end of this movie, but the rest of it, like there's not enough humor in this comedy.
2: Yeah. That, that the soda can scene is honestly one of my favorite scenes of the movie. Okay. I I think it's a nice distillation of the blending Mm -hmm. of it. Like, like, you know, and it, and it's trying to, and it's a, it's a tough point of the movie to be trying to go for this dark comedy, mm-hmm. you know, but I think just the simplicity of it does work. And like you said, like, this is him still trying to be a good dad in the last 10 minutes of, you know, his family's life. And like, yeah, mm-hmm. like uh, Matthew Good's reactions, like when he like, because he'll like take a pause in the hallway before he comes in back into the room with the sodas. And then like when he goes out and he like does like his like little like flailing thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there's like also another shot where he's just like in in the pantry, like on the floor, just like kind of sitting there for a minute. Um, but I think it's a, a nice distillation of uh, of the blending of it of trying to still inject humor into this uh, yeah. into this really thing. Like I mean, this movie doesn't go for like big laughs, but like I giggle throughout the entire it, it, throughout okay. a lot of scenes in this. Like I'm not like like yeah, I, I think calling it a a black comedy is tough. Um, it's kind of more of a it's kind of more of a horror drama with some sprinkles of humor in it. Like I wouldn't pitch this to somebody as a horror comedy, like, because that's like, that's like, that's like Tucker and Dale, you know, that's a horror comedy, you know, versus like,
1: uh, but, but it works for me personally. But I think the issue is they do pitch it as a comedy. Like they come out and pitch this like this is a comedy. And I'm like, is it, are you sure? Like I do the, "You, you, you should be leaving, Are you sure about that? You know, like that's how I feel like comedy should be fun. And I just feel like there's not enough of that there. And Hey, so much of it works. Just like that part is lacking to me.
2: Mm. What about your sense of humor? Nicole, does this one make you laugh or giggle?
0: Yeah, I think it's very funny and I, but I, I think it's funny because it is kind of disturbing. You know, there's a dead kid, we imagine, being cradled by the mom, and the two, his two brothers are more worried about a full can of soda. Um, they don't know, I think, the gravity of the situation because they've hit him um, by keeping kind of his face obscured to Nell's chest. But, um, you know, they. I, I. think everyone knows that he's been exposed, mm-hmm. and the kids are like, oh, "But our soda." That's really a great want?
1: reveal, by the way.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's horrible, um, but I, I. I. do find that funny because again, it's just about like what matters to people when they're dying, when it's the end. What What is their concern? Mm-hmm. What is the thing that's on their mind? And um you know for for some people it's hey remember how we were in school together and you know there was a little bit of tension between us maybe why didn't Mm -hmm. you fuck me and then other people it's i was promised a full can of soda
1: yes and yep so i get it and i guess humor is subjective And I find, like, a lot of humor in really dark things, and this should land for me, and I just don't know why a lot of it doesn't for some reason. Um, I don't know if it's Art's face for some reason. (laughs) Like, there's just something about... He's a cute little kid, but there's something about his face that by the end of the movie, I'm like, I'm sick of looking at you. (laughs) Um, And he's a cute kid, and he's a great actor, but after a bit, I'm like all right stop with the righteous indignation kid you're 11 sorry (laughs) part of my frustration he gets all of like the most moral lines in the movie Mm -hmm. and i feel that's definitely a choice like you're giving your son all of like the morally most righteous lines in the movie like of course all the homeless persons should have the pill like yes of course they should why is it only like this 12 year old boy that is having that lines. Like when James is talking to him about like, this is the line of work I do as a cancer doctor. Like I've seen people die horrible deaths. Sometimes like they're in horrible pain and they choose to die. Cause pain is why people want to die. He's like, you're supposed to help people and you're not helping anyone. And it's like, Oh kid, like you're not wrong, but you're also 12. It's like, it's not, I don't know. Like to me, And I think what a difference like two years makes because this movie comes out in 2019 and the lines about like, what if, you know, what if the government's wrong? What if the scientists are wrong? Like, what if they're lying to us? Like that line hits a lot different in 2021 than it does. And I don't think that's any fault of like Camille Griffin. Like I don't think that was not her intention at all to be like hey we're anti-vax or like covid isn't real like that was not her intention but it's impossible to watch a movie like this and not at least discuss it through that lens in 2021
2: oh yeah like it it definitely hit a lot different on this uh on this rewatch. that scene especially because he's like because he, when he makes the example about his teacher, he's like, "Oh, well, you know." But after break, he uh, went and apologized to the kid when he was wrong. Versus, it's like in this situation, that's not really gonna get to happen. <laughs> like, there's not gonna mm-hmm. be like, if they do figure out that this whole thing isn't real, there's not gonna be a point to where the government can be like, "Oh, hey, we apologize for this." You know, there's kind of no going back from this choice. And and mm-hmm. I think to your point of like, art kind of having the most like righteous, uh, you know, lines and things like that in this. Uh, I think they get away with it because he is a kid, like because he's he still has the ignorance of a kid, like of only the limited experiences that he's had, the things that he doesn't know about the world, uh, like like whenever uh James like is like kid, you have no idea about pain, uh, which is like kind of one, it's a little diminutive, but it's like well no, mm-hmm. a kid still feels pain, they still do know, but it, what he's getting at is like like, hey, I've lived another 40 more years than you, and like, yeah. I've kind of seen a little bit more, you know, so his, his view is, is a little bit narrow.
1: James's next line should have been, let me show you about pain, <laughs> and then he puts him in the figure four, and then like, makes the kid tap out, that would have been a am- mate. that would have been funny. Like, if but, he suplexes the kid.
0: But I think that we're getting into the conversation, and this is something that Devon mentioned at the very beginning it's about autonomy Mm -hmm. kids aren't able to make the choice whether they want to take the pill um the parents are the ones saying no you're going to you have to um and even if it is in their best interest um you know it is stripping someone of their ability to make a choice and we see that with sophie When we discover that she's pregnant, Mm -hmm. she doesn't want to take the pill, but she's taken, you know, by being there, she's part of this group, and she's agreed to do this, but she can't change her mind as an adult. Um, And, you know, I I, I think that that's where the complexity of the conversation comes in, because as... Go ahead. No, you first. I'm sorry. I finished that thought. Because, um, I mean, even a doctor um, can tell you, like, this is going to be your best treatment. Um, this is what you need to do. But maybe that treatment isn't the one that's right for you.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, for a number of different reasons yeah. that the doctor may not be aware of. So it, it just gets into a lot of those discussions around autonomy and choice and um uh, i i think you're exactly right it it's a lot different looking at it through the lens of 2021 versus had it come out yeah. in 2019
1: i feel what i feel what james does to sophie is cruel where he says like i'm not going to take this pill unless you do because it's it, it puts her in a position where like it kind of removes the choice from her hands because she doesn't want to see him suffer. Like he's already made, he knows that her choice was to not take the pill and he's known that the whole time. And then at the very absolute last moment, when there's no turning back, when she doesn't have any more time to really think about it, he says like, if you don't take the pill, um, I'm not going to take it and I'm going to suffer with you, which she doesn't want to see him do. And that seems really cruel. And you're right. That strips him that strips her of her autonomy. I feel like that's different from a parent with their children. Sure. Because it's, 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 a parent. I mean, it's my responsibility and my daughter is getting older and she's becoming more autonomous and we try to let her make, even when we feel like it's not necessarily the best choice, we sometimes we're like, we got to let her fail. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as it's not dangerous, we got to let her fail sometimes. Um Yeah. I, I think you, I think the one way... when they're younger you gotta like look out for their what is their best it's your responsibility to do what is best for your children, even if it's impossible sometimes to make the right choice.
2: Yeah, I, I could see what they were going for with Sophie in kind of linking it to her being pregnant and like then it kinda of with, you know, a lot of the conversations that we've had about abortion Uh, recently and you know so it's like I can see where they're going I think the misstep is they could have used this character to do a little bit more to like kind of make a bit more of a statement Because like you said, like it's then just like kind of stripped away from her uh, in the end. Like he basically does what um, I I hate when people propose to their spouses at at, like at like large events, like at a concert Mm -hmm. or a game or something. It's like, no, you're setting them up like that's not fair. You know, like Mm -hmm. you're in your mind. That's a sweet thing. And in James's mind, he's like, oh, I'm trying to be romantic. I'll suffer with you not thinking like no 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 she doesn't want to see that for you either so of course that's going to affect her decision you know so it's like i i do kind of wish um that they did uh a little bit more tying uh you know the atami like they kind of have the they try to have these moments between like art and sophie like of her like kind of understanding him to a degree um but i think yeah if there's one my one quibble with the movie is uh sophie's uh arc isn't as um as uh, rich and enlightening as it could
1: be, yeah. I think part of it too is she's very young. Like that is one. I get. It's it's hinted that she is like a very young person. I think at one point, I'm trying to remember, like on they the make, board, they make a,
0: a of, they make a joke.
1: They make a pet of a pedal reference on the Scrabble board. Kirby does that. Uh, and poor Kirby gets completely sidelined like she gets champagne drunk passes out and is like eliminated from the story until there's like five minutes left
0: but see I think that there's uh, I, there's also the joke at the beginning when James and Sophie first arrive where they're like how old is she 15 mm-hmm. and I'm like no she can't be 15 she's she's 20 mm-hmm. um but she's still an adult, yeah, and she can make the choices that she wants to make. And I—I I mean, I'm not saying that parents shouldn't be able to make decisions for their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, they should. Um, parents have to operate in the best interests of their kids, um, and often have more knowledge and foresight into those choices than their kids can have in those moments. So. But I just, I agree with Devon. I think that there could have been a better way to really expand on all of this and make it much more fulfilling, especially related to Sophie, because she's just kind of there as a representation, I think, of something, as opposed to yeah. her story being really reflective yep. and connected.
1: Yeah. So, a couple other things really quick before we wrap up. The goodbye phone call like devon you wanted to talk about that a little bit so i think that's a really sad moment as well yeah that that's where the the the
2: dourness really kicks in like we've had a few moments of tension up to that point um but it's mainly been like still them laughing and still partying and all these things and it, the zoom call comes exactly at the 45 minute mark like it's right in the middle of the film And this is the part that felt the most uh, pandemic-esque to me. Because, one, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, who benefited more from uh, the pandemic than Zoom, uh, for one? But then uh, it's this interesting, you know, idea of, like, you know, the the grandma is separated. We don't exactly know. Like, they say she's far, but they don't exactly explain, uh, you know, why she's not with them. Um, But it's like, you know, they're Bridge Club. Yeah, Bridge Club, of course. Um, uh, you know, but it's it, this interesting idea of like, you know, they're like, you know, it really hits Nell that like, oh, like, cause like up to that point, Nell has been pretty light about the whole night and stuff. But then that's when it mm-hmm. really, uh, the realness hits her and it, and it hit me in a way because like me being out here, I'm out in Los Angeles and the rest of my family's in St. Louis. And I had, like, those difficult decisions whenever uh, pandemic and lockdown were happening. Like, do I go back home and, like, move back home like some of my other friends were doing? But then I was, like, I was worried. I was, like, oh, I don't know if I'll be able to get the unemployment that way. And then, like, also if this does end pretty quickly, I don't want to be, like, kind of stuck back home. But at the same time, there was also the decisions of it was, like, very dangerous to fly and, like, before the vaccine and, like, not and me being worried about getting it. So, but then I, at one point I was just like, well, no, I have to. I still have to risk doing this, you know, flight home, so that way I can at least, you know, have that moment, rather than me having to have a, you know, goodbye via Zoom call, you know, with my mm-hmm. family, you know. So, so that that moment is what really kind of turned uh, the the dourness up for the film, and like right. for for the rest of it, we kind of do have uh, some more like gut punches like that. But like that was the moment where it's like. Yeah, we we have been kind of keeping it light, but like no, this this is very very real.
0: Yeah, it's it's rough, and you're exactly right. And that I think it is something that probably resonates with a lot of people, um, because we lots of people had those really difficult conversations. If it wasn't a goodbye conversation, it was is this a goodbye conversation? Maybe their loved one was sick. And you never yeah. know what would happen. And so I um, it is really rough. And in, in I think Nell's reaction to it really hits it home with how hard she's finding it too. Because she's been very much like, let's keep this light you know, truth and love and let's have this be as positive mm-hmm. of an experience. But I think this is where she's wrestling with the reality of my mom is going to, to be dead. I'm going to be dead. Everyone in this yeah. house is going to be dead. Yeah.
1: I found to and remember this was all filmed before lockdown. So before we would even know what this is going to look like. So how it predicted what the next year was going to look like is pretty remarkable. Um the mom's sign off of saying, Oh, I have to let you go because I got to say goodbye to my girls in bridge club. Seems like the most British thing to do as well, because she, the truth is far more terrifying and they like, Oh, the clouds are actually rolling in. And it speaks again to that idea of like, not being able to have like the hard conversation to being able to say like, Hey, this is actually the real end for me and not being able to, speak that honest truth i actually feel it's a little bit meaner and crueler to say like i have to let you go because bridge club because it's almost feels like they take priority over your grandkids and your daughter i mean I, in some way i think there was a... and you're trying to spare their feelings but
2: I mean I think there was an understanding with like probably. Nell and Simon. They knew what she was alluding to, but like mm-hmm. I think it was due yeah. to the fact that the kids were on the Zoom call. She's not going to mm-hmm. go, "Okay, grandma's about to go inhale the cloud." Mm-hmm. Uh you know, mm-hmm. like uh you know, so You're probably right.
0: Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah because uh art, not uh, It's not art. One of the kids is like, "No, let's Maybe it is art." It's art.
1: Um, it's like call yeah, her back and he gets adamant about it it's like art slow your roll dude
0: yeah but simon is very much like
1: we yeah. can't yeah
0: um, would have been better
1: Grandma... if like bridge club were like two hunky dudes she hired to see her off you know that was like <laughs> would have been way better but you know that's, that's what that's what grandma's bridge club was but I mean that that is one
2: uh, thing that is kind of missing from this is like if it's the end of the world where wh- where is nobody why is nobody fucking like there should have been cutaways yeah. to people like fucking in the bathroom like this is your last day on earth like that's what Sandra was saying like there there that 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 is one that would have been very funny if Grandma was like okay boys one more time. I also would have been tripping balls during this entire thing. Like, you know, uh, Kirby had the right idea, like breaking her sobriety and getting drunk. But like, I would have been like, Mm -hmm. like I would have had some Molly on hand. I would have had some acid on hand. Mm -hmm. Like I would not have been going, uh, out, you know,
1: with a sober mind. (laughs) You would have been running into that green cloud. Like fucking the wicked. You would have been pretty colors. Um, I found one of the saddest subplots was, you know, Kitty denying her mom, like a hug. Um, it just seemed mean. And just like, why won't you hug me? Like you're wearing my college fund on your feet. It's like, Oh, well kid, you're not going to college. Sorry, kid. Like college ain't in the cards. You didn't even seem that bright anyway. Um, definitely big Veruca salt vibes there. And again, What made it worse was, like, really, I feel like she didn't even love her dad that much, but she was, like, over-exaggerating her affection for dad in order to dig the knife into mom that much worse. And I am a big believer, like, you know, we have Ada. I'm a big believer in you don't make your kids hug someone just because, like, someone asks them to do. You don't demand, like, you're a kid, you owe someone affection. It's not right because it just teaches them to be subservient. It, it, it can really harm your kid. So you don't do that. Um, but I still found this really heartbreaking. And I found it like when the parents are dying and she's like, please just give me a hug. And she's like, nope, and runs out to get her doll. And her parents are like paralyzed. And then when she comes back and they're both dead, that's when she can hug her mom. And... Yeah, that, that to me was the saddest part of the whole fucking movie. I still found it
2: very heartbreaking, but it wasn't mm-hmm. due to Kitty not loving them. I I saw it more as like this was the result of... Sandra and Tony not preparing Kitty, at, you know, for the moment mm-hmm. properly. Like throughout yeah. the entire movie, they don't really, you know, again, like Sandra is kind of one of the ones that keeps trying to cover up the situation and things like that. And even when they uh her and Nell sit down with the kids earlier, like Nell's the one doing the talking and Sandra's just like, mm-hmm. "Oh, you love us, right?" you know, so it's like I saw it just as like they they didn't prepare Kitty for mm-hmm. like, "Hey, when the moment comes, this is like what's going down." And Kitty still not being able to wrap her head around it, even in the last moment, still being like, oh, wait, no, I got time. I need to get my doll or I got time. I need to do this Mm -hmm. uh, versus like I didn't I'd never read too much into it. And as far as like her lack of affection for the mother, I thought it was more Sandra's lack of preparation for her.
0: I think it's a bit of both. I I see that. I also think she's a spoiled kid. Yeah. And I think spoiled kids, especially at that age, probably have this idea of I don't need to worry about ev- anything mm-hmm. because that's what parents do; they take care of everything. Nothing's going to affect me. Nothing will hurt me. Um, and they kind of doubled down on that by not preparing her, and so I think she just has this distance of like what is actually happening and what will happen. Um, and I, I do find it heartbreaking at the very end when you see her kind of cuddled up with her mom. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very, very sad.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: So, the end of this movie, very end, you
1: know, we we go through everything. You feel the whole family is dead. You go like that slow roll through the home. You panda Art's face, and it's an indeterminate amount of time later. Like we know it's not the next day. Like the snow is falling. You kind of get the feeling it's maybe been at least a few days, maybe longer. Art opens his eyes. What do we make of the end of this movie with art surviving? Kira Knightley has said, like it's supposed to represent the resiliency of the younger generation. As they tackle the issue of climate change. I feel like that sounds like a bunch of horse shit, and I'm not buying it. I'm like, sorry, no, I'm not. I mean,
2: no, I don't think it was a couple days because they, they took the pill, it was around like midnight, 1 a.m. So I assumed mm-hmm. it was like maybe like five hours later, like when the sun was coming up and like and then mm. the snow was falling because it, it happened like in the middle of the night whenever um, everybody was doing their things. Um, but uh, I, I don't love. I don't love the, the the ending because I think it's uh, the movie's already kind of been a bummer this whole time and I don't think it needs like one extra sting to like make it even worse um, because you know because uh, I think with it being kind of a grim dour movie um, I think it would have been fine that it's just like oh our quote-unquote happy ending is everyone's dead um, you know at the end so it's like um, uh, so, I uh, I think it would have felt more in line with it. And cause I, cause I think what they're kind of implying, because they say earlier in the movie though, like we, the cloud has hit other places before. So we already know mm-hmm. that the cloud does kill people and stuff, mm-hmm. you know? So I think the only thing with this was like, I don't think it was revealing that it wasn't real. I think it, if anything, it was like art only like somewhat got infected during that, that one scene. Which, uh, that's the scene that gets me in this movie with whenever Art discovers uh, the car and uh, Simon has to get him. The that, that's the scene that breaks me. I, I thought I was going to get through this rewatch without crying again, but like it, it got me again. So, so I think during that scene, he was only like maybe partially infected, and that's why he mm-hmm. still woke his eyes up. Cause I still believe that it's real because we heard in other instances that it has hit other places already and nobody survived. So, like, I, but it, it just sucks because, like, He's going to grow up with his family, and maybe he isn't the only person in the world that didn't take the pill, and maybe there are some survivors, but, like, uh, so, like, I don't know. I just don't think they needed it to raise these extra questions.
0: But why do we think that he's come back as art
1: in art form? I don't think you're meant to think, like, he's come back as a zombie. I don't think it's See, a I... <laughs>
0: That makes me feel better. There there
1: are some like deleted scenes and alternate endings that are pretty much the same thing. And it's him kind of going through the home as art. And I think there's like a radio that plays like, Hey, if you survive this, here's where you should go. Like there are other survivors. Um, And it's pretty much a play, like all kind of have the same ending. There's nothing where he like wanders into the street and then like chomps on somebody. And then says brains, which, you know, so I don't think it's that kind of movie. Um, I think you're meant to. And I guess that gets to my thing I said earlier, like what a difference a couple years makes. It calls He's the one person who is like, I'm questioning the scientists. Like, what if the good scientists died and we've been left with all the stupid ones that uploaded the wrong files? Like, what if the government is lying to you? you know, what if this is a great government reset? And, like, like, what if we kill off 95% of the population, take all their land and wealth, and we get to keep all of it, and then we'll just start over again? I wouldn't put that past some governments, would you? Um, That is, like, what it feels like it's possible the end of this movie could be saying, like, based on when it came out, even though it wasn't written or filmed maybe with that intention, it's hard to not read a little bit of that into it.
0: Well, and I think that it's also the ending that some people have talked about it mm-hmm. being more pointed in terms of being anti-vax, yeah. because he's the one person who had issues with the Bill, mm-hmm. and um, so I, I don't know. I I agree with Devon that it does just it's just one more layer of oh shit um to what has been kind of a you know a roller coaster hill Mm -hmm. of just upsetness um but I I I kind of like that it just ends on an even sourer note of now here's this kid that is going to see everyone he's been with dead, his family dead and have to figure out what he is going to do. Um, And I like that the film doesn't even bother, like it, it ends there. We, we don't have to take a journey to see him connect with other survivors because this could have been a two hour movie Mm -hmm. and we could have had that, but cuts off and yeah. it's a nice tight 90. Yep. They even make a reference
1: to the road Cormac McCarthy and the road and they're like I'm not going through that post apocalyptic shit and they I think that's great that you don't see that here that you're not getting any hint of it at the end of this it's like nope he wakes up I Reason I think it's longer than a day is because we know that this cloud, like you said, Devon, has moved on to other places or it's been to other places. So I'm thinking people are gradually waking up. Maybe not everybody, but some people are waking up from this thing. It's not killing every single person. It might be a crapshoot. Or who knows? Like maybe it is. Maybe everybody that didn't take the pill after a week or two wakes up and they're just like, man, that sucked. Felt like I puked my brains out, but, you know, I'm okay after that. Yeah, I mean, I kind I, I, of, so. I, I like, yeah,
2: I mean, I, I guess I'm, I don't need, because I don't think every film needs an ambiguous ending, you know? True. that That's kind of my thing with this. But mm-hmm. an interesting uh, parallel is, uh, I totally forgot, Kira Knightley was also in another apocalyptic movie, very similar, mm-hmm. uh, Seeking a Best Friend for the End of the World, uh, which mm-hmm. is also a yep. tearjerker and kind of has a similar ish ending. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I totally didn't even think about the parallels between those two. Ah, kind of need to rewatch that movie now.
1: Excellent. So that is Silent Night, 2021's Silent Night. Not to be confused with the Silent Night remake of Silent Night Deadly <laughs> Night. Not to be confused with 2023, John Woo's Silent Night. So there's a lot to choose from there. Uh, And yeah, I think we hammered it home. So Devon, what do you got coming up with Spectre Cinema Club?
2: Uh, Over on Spectre Cinema Club, we got new episodes every Tuesday with me and my buddy Gary McDowell. And uh, we are currently uh, doing possession movies uh, leading up to the big 50th anniversary of The Exorcist. Um, So uh, we're doing that. We also have uh, some bonus content uh, out right now as uh, we're going to be launching a Patreon in January. Uh, So we have some uh, uh, bonus uh, uh, Patreon episodes that we uh, gave out for free as a Christmas present for you guys. Uh, uh, So, yeah, uh, we... um uh, started off with uh, the original Amityville movie and now uh, we got movies like Event Horizon and Saint Maud also on the docket uh, so very exciting excellent. so uh, make sure you go uh, check us out over there and you can follow me on all social medias at underscore daddy disco excellent Nicole what do
1: you got with bodies of horror
0: so the most recent episode has uh, been posted and that is a conversation with Joe Lipset about Saint Maude uh-huh. um, really delving in Uh, kind of like uh, end of life and illness, disability as someone in the LGBTQ community. Um, Caregiving, all sorts of complex and interesting topics there. Um, Really great episode. Uh, Upcoming episodes uh, might have one on the docket with Devon talking about an absolute mindfuck of a film that I'm so excited to talk about. What movie?
2: We're, we're having a real dour weekend here. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm crying a lot this weekend. Geez, Louise.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, and then Brian, who has also been on uh, Pod and the Pendulum, uh, a guest here. Uh, he is going to be uh, talking about. Uh, we're we're taking a different track. Uh, serpent in the rainbow uh so i'm super excited about where that conversation uh is gonna go and then yeah i in january going to be delving into some light there talking about eugenics
1: oh okay like light, light topic to start yeah i there voted that one
0: <laughs> yeah
1: so for us for the pod on the pendulum you can visit our site pod on the pendulum.com where we have all of our uh, episodes listed. You can leave us. Uh, you think we have a little thing there. We've actually gotten some nice comments from folks that are there. And I've actually tried to take a minute to reply to most people that have like taken their time to write us. There's also a link there where you can rate, review, and subscribe to us. So please, if you haven't already, Please rate, review, and subscribe to us. It goes a long way to listeners finding us. Leave us a five-star review and a few kind words. That's huge for us. Uh, We really appreciate that. Uh, If you have not already and have the means to do so, consider becoming a patron of the show. Go to patreon.com slash pod in the pendulum. It's where you'll find about 50 hours of bonus content right now. We've posted our uh, Thanksgiving bonus episode on Thanksgiving. I believe for the month of December, we're going to do Godzilla minus one. And I'm going to try to get some Christmas bonus content, some Christmas horror content up there as well. So becoming a patron uh, allows you to access like a ton of bonus material and it goes a long way to us getting a lot of the materials we need to put on the show, allows us to pay for hosting the site, allows us to pay for like running the website. So go to patreon.com slash pod on the pendulum. Once we get to 50 patrons, we're putting Hellraiser on the docket, so I want to get to that number at some point in 2024, so I think we're going to start getting pretty aggressive to get there thank you so much for being a listener, we really appreciate it, we have a couple more Christmas movies, Christmas horror movies on the docket, we'll be back next week with Krampus I covered that movie for the patron so I think we're going to have a different crew talking about that movie and then we're going to be doing Christmas Evil The following week on Christmas Day, Steven and I are covering A Muppet Christmas Carol. After that, it's our top 10 horror movies of the year for the new year. And then we're starting our next franchise in early January. We're covering all of the Universal Frankenstein monster movies, which I'm really excited to cover. I've already started my notes on those, uh, and I think those are going to be some pretty... Fantastic episodes. Brian and I have got some great stuff in store for that. Thank you so much. Thanks to my co host Brian and Devon. We hope you've enjoyed our podcast.